Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. What's causing a mysterious illness that's killing birds across the region? Scientists are stumped. There's one just belly up in the middle of the lawn. You know, if he had gotten hit by a car or something, I think he would have looked mangled, but he was just looked otherwise normal, but, but dead. And who gets to decide who has children and who doesn't? A century ago, a global movement of scientists thought they had the answers. We talk with author Elizabeth Catt about eugenics in Virginia. And the system that Virginia developed for controlling the lives of quote unquote unfit people, primarily poor, black, native, or disabled people. And we'll hear about the aftermath of devastating floods in Kentucky five months ago. It's a grief process. You know, you didn't lose anything. You didn't lose a person, but you lost, you, lost you know, you, you, saw, you lost your sense of identity. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. In the Mountain County where I live in Virginia, there's an active local Facebook group. And one of the recurring topics that gets people really worked up? Bird feeders. People argue over whether they should take them down during bear season, or even what's the proper mix of seed. Well, some wildlife officials are asking people to take down their bird feeders and bird baths right now. Sick and dying songbirds are being reported across the Mid-Atlantic, including here in Appalachia. The Allegheny Front's Andy Cubis has more from Pennsylvania. Cindy Fink's yard in Moon Township, just north of Pittsburgh, is small, but she gets a lot of bird visitors, attracted by the buffet of choices she provides. Sunflower seed, and then I have a bird bath. I feed them nuts and some suet. I have a couple bird houses. This year I had a chickadee nest in one of the houses, which was really fun to watch. This is the part of the story where you'd normally hear the sound of birds from Fink's yard, but not this time. That's because she's taken all of her feeders down and emptied the bird bath after seeing an alert on Facebook. When I first saw it, I said, oh, that's silly. My birds are fine. But then I kept seeing it in more places and the game commission and uh, all over the place. I said, I, I better stop because I, I don't want them to get any sicker than they may already be. In late May, wildlife managers across the Mid-Atlantic began receiving reports of sick or dead songbirds, mainly blue jays, starlings and grackles, but also robins, cardinals and others. The hope is that removing feeders will prevent birds from gathering and possibly spreading disease. A couple weeks ago, before she took her feeders down, Fink found a dead bird in her yard. I was walking out to my mailbox, and there's always robins out in my yard, and there's one just belly up in the middle of the lawn. You know, if he had gotten hit by a car or something, I think he would have looked mangled, but he was just looked otherwise normal, but but dead. And I thought that was really strange. Rachel Handel of the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania says people should be on the lookout for certain signs of disease, like crusty eyes. The birds who are showing symptoms of the illness have conjunctivitis or neurological problems, so they perhaps seem disoriented. Handel says people should avoid handling any dead birds they find and keep pets away. The cause is still not known. Because there are so many variables involved, um, getting to that root cause right now just has not happened. Researchers across the country are trying to figure out what's going on, and they need the public's help. The Wildlife Futures Program at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Veterinary Medicine is helping track the numbers with an online form. As of Tuesday, they've received more than 1,000 reports. Most were from Pennsylvania. Our lab has uh, received cases working in uh, collaboration with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. It, it appears to be widespread throughout the Commonwealth. That's Dr. Scott Weber with the Wildlife Futures Program. His lab has been conducting bird autopsies and a variety of testing to try to solve the mystery. So that testing has included looking at for different toxins, looking for different bacterial diseases, different viral diseases, we also looking for parasites. We um, look at all the tissues of these dead birds and uh, we do that um, grossly and also under a microscope to see if we can see any evidence of, of a pathogen or, or other type of disease. So why is it so hard to figure out the cause of this? Weber says it's just a matter of finding the pathogen. Especially if it's a new emerging disease where the pathogen hasn't been identified before. We wanna make sure that any pathogens we do find are consistent with a lot of the cases that are being submitted. 
So far, researchers have ruled out some known bird pathogens like salmonella, avian influenza virus, and the West Nile virus. One theory out there is that it has something to do with the brood 10 cicadas that emerged this spring. With the cicadas, I know we have looked at, for instance, a toxin that was infecting the cicadas. I believe that they haven't found that toxin in these birds. The other thing is, is that we're looking at some of the pesticides used to control cicadas. For that theory, it's not necessarily um, a dead end. It provides some information and it provides some direction in some cases. But um, so far, the evidence hasn't pointed to that uh, as a cause for us. Weber says that unknown disease outbreaks like this occur regularly. Just this past winter, songbird deaths were linked to a salmonella outbreak. And while there's cause for alarm, he feels confident researchers will be able to figure out why the birds are dying. In the meantime, Weber says people don't have to worry about the birds having enough to eat without the backyard feeders. There's ample food out there for them at this point in time, so they they shouldn't have many problems. Not having them around is very strange. Again, backyard bird feeder Cindy Fink. I work from home now, so I'm home all day, so it gives me a little something to look at when I'm taking a break from the computer, and there's nothing to look at anymore. And I think the cats are a little sad, too. (laughs) Fink says she just hopes they figure out what's going on soon so she can start feeding her birds again. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Andy Cubis. As we just heard, most wildlife officials are recommending people stop feeding birds until this illness slows down. But others say there's room for more flexibility. One of them is Ethan Barton, a wildlife disease specialist for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources. He recently spoke with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas. We've been hearing a lot of these reports that started in, what, May of bird deaths, and it was mostly eastern panhandle, Maryland, uh, northern Virginia, that sort of thing. But now it seems like it's spread uh, up to Wisconsin and Missouri and across Kentucky. Do we have any idea yet what's going on? So so not yet. So our first, our first reports in West Virginia were in Berkeley and Jefferson counties at the beginning of June. Um, and we've had, at this point in time, Uh, reported to the agency somewhere between about 100 and 150 bird deaths, not all of those being related to this. So far, the bulk of the reports have still come from Berkeley and Jefferson counties. And, you know, there's there's been a wide range of mortality that's been reported, but few large events seem to be related to this. Uh, So we've got a lot of ones and twos and threes, um, still primarily young birds uh, with the inflammation around eyes, crusty kind of discharge around eyes, uh, and, and a similar suite of species that the other states have been seeing. So robins, grackles, European starlings. We're still working with diagnostic labs and with partner agencies, um, USGS, other state agencies. And the, the latest news to come out is this does not at this point seem to be viral in origin, at least not a known virus. And there have also been some tests for um, salmonella, uh, chlamydia, trichomonas, which is a parasite, uh, and all negative just just for scale, though, so you said 100 or 150 or so in West Virginia. It's in multiple states, but I assume the numbers are relatively small in all of those as well. Uh, I don't think any of the other states have seen large, really large scale mortality events. And it, it does seem to be a lot of like penny packets, ones and twos and threes at a given location. But do you think, I mean, is it is it because they're birds and they die in places where people aren't? Or is it just that it's it's just a really small incident? I'm just trying to understand um, the scale. It's at, yeah, at this point, in terms of in terms of idea of scale, and it's it's hard to put your finger on exactly how many birds are going to be involved. You know, there was larger press involvement, and we see this with wildlife diseases: is that people who are not well versed in these things will suddenly start calling to report any dead bird they find, not necessarily just ones that are exhibiting the clinical signs. Um, so it seems to be relatively widespread, but the actual mortality seems to be pretty diffuse uh, and relatively low intensity. You, you don't think there are millions of birds falling out of the sky, but uh, but it's still something to be concerned about. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be the case. And that, like, the interesting part here is the really heavy involvement of younger birds. Um, you know, younger birds don't have fully developed immune system yet. They're not going to be able to respond to a parasite or pathogen uh, that may be innocuous to an adult bird. Uh, but yeah, at this at this point, it doesn't seem like it's something serious as serious as say uh, avian botulism, where you may find thousands of waterfowl dead in, in the same wetland. You seem to be talking about the larger scales, the 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 grackles, the uh, the robins, the 
I assume, I think Blue Jays too are in there. Most of our reports have, have been those starlings, grackles, robins. Um, we have had a few, uh, a few others like yellow-billed cuckoo and some other states have, have observed that as well. Um, we weren't actually able to get good specimens of those to, to ship into the lab. The ones that had been found were, were pretty rotted up. And that's when investigating avian mortality events, especially with small birds in the heat of the summer, little birds go bad awfully fast. You talked about what it isn't, what in any possibilities of what it is or what, what is causing the problem? Other states and, and ourselves, we started to get our first reports uh, around the time that the 17-year the brood 10 cicadas were starting to emerge. Um, so I think the Smithsonian and a few others have, have floated some, some possible relationships there. I mean, I guess the good news is the brood 10 cicadas are pretty much done now, right? So if, if it is cicada-related, we and, and the other states around us should be seeing this subside pretty quickly. We have sent some, uh, some of the brood 10 cicadas uh, from West Virginia. I know Virginia collected a number and sent them. I think some other states did too. Um, so trying to run some, some toxicology on them. I think thus far, there's not been a whole lot of support for the idea and, you know, given results um, that it doesn't, it may not be toxin related. Um, I think so far they've, they've been relatively clean. Um, but we're, we're thinking probably what's going on here with, with young birds, um, you know, being primarily the ones that are involved. Um, this may be something, you know, maybe something multifactorial. So we're, we're doing our best as an agency. And I know, I know all the other state agencies are as well. Uh, to keep up with public calls, trying to triage those out, figure out what's related, what's not related, um, making records, identifying the species, uh, and then shipping out specimens as we can to, to try to get to the bottom of, of what's going on here. The fact that it's probably not viral means it, it's probably not being transmitted at bird feeders and bird baths and that sort of thing. But I assume for the short term, you're still, the recommendation is still to, to not feed for the summer? So especially in, the, in those affected counties that we know are affected, uh, and the other counties in West Virginia, we've, we've uh, you know, recommended that people maybe think about good, good feeder hygiene, as we call it. So um, in best practice, bird feeders that are out there should really be taken down and thoroughly cleaned every 10 to 14 days. So even, even in the absence of a unique event like what seems to be going on this year, there are avian diseases that commonly are spread at bird feeders, especially in the warmer months. Uh, so things like trichomonas, which is a protozoan parasite, um, and you've got others like avian pox that may be spread there. Salmonella may be spread there and is a, a pretty big killer of small birds. And then uh, mycoplasma is a bacteria um, that can lead to similar symptoms as, as kind of what we're seeing here. It's primarily known in house finches. So quite a few people a number of years ago said, oh, I saw a finch, it had swollen crusty eyes. Um, Mycoplasma gallicepticum is pretty contagious and it's transmitted at bird feeders. So regardless of whether or not, you know, this is viral or what the origin of it is, it's still solid guidance um, for people to, to kind of do their part for the resource that they, you know, that they care about and are feeding uh, to try to keep them healthy. That was Ethan Barton, wildlife disease specialist for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources. Barton was speaking with Eric Douglas about the possible causes of bird deaths throughout the region. Head to our website, wvpublic.org, to find out how to get involved and report bird deaths in your area. People from across the U.S. come to Appalachia every year to find serenity in the mountains. In western North Carolina, a program offers that opportunity to writers looking for a peaceful place to, well, write. Blue Ridge Public Radio's Matt Pikin has this story from outside Asheville. When Marjorie Dial first walked the rustic 30 acres north of Marshall that once housed East Fork Pottery, she noticed what almost everyone would, the natural beauty. But Dial is a ceramic artist who was also in a position to see something beyond beauty. She saw potential. Artists are asked to do so much to make their work and explain their work and promote their work, sell their work. And this idea started to germinate in me of creating a place where artists felt supported and valued and a sense of affection around making work and going deeply into it. 
East Fork Pottery moved to Biltmore Village, but left the clay studios and kilns on the old grounds. Dial has refurbished the main home and added a trio of living suites and a community kitchen and rebranded the compound as a retreat for artists called Township 10. Dozens of residency centers around the country invite artists to spend a week, a few weeks, a few months, or even longer. All offer housing on or off-site, time and space to create, and usually interaction with a tiny community of other resident artists. Many, but not all, operate as nonprofit organizations, and the most coveted residencies come to artists without any cost beyond their own travel. The application process is often competitive. Creative artists need time to create. They need time to incubate. Heather Hartley is half the couple behind Trillium Arts. Hartley and Phil Reynolds purchased 22 acres in Mars Hill last year to open an artist residency. So often in our sector, in the performing arts sector, there is sometimes a rush to completion. You have this premiere date and you have a theater or a venue, a presenter that is looking for completed work. And we both believe very strongly that some of the strongest work comes whenever there is time for the artist to have a true creative greenhouse period. Hartley has a deep background in dance and Reynolds as an arts presenter. They were so eager to get rolling with Trillium, they tapped their neighbor's Airbnb rentals to house their first resident artists and laid a tap dancing floor in a neighboring barn. The couple are raising money earmarked to add living and studio spaces. Meanwhile, they're charging some artists to spend a week at a time on their grounds and inviting others without charge. What we do have here in Mars Hill is the beautiful piece of property and a lot of potential. We want to do as much as we can to support a healthy arts ecology. The financial reality is, is that Phil and I are not wealthy people. We could just sit here and let the space and this beauty be empty the rest of the year, or we can fill it up with people who want to come. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, is we get more applications than we can accommodate. The founders of Township 10 and Trillium Arts turned cash inheritances into their seed funding. In North Asheville, performance artist Claire Elizabeth Barrett and a handful of friends are helping Barrett fulfill a lifelong dream. This is my home, and it's something I would be doing for my space, for myself, anyway. Barrett is converting the backyard, living room, and second bedroom of the home that used to belong to her parents into the Center for Connection and Collaboration. Unemployment insurance and modest fundraising have picked up most of the cost for materials. Everything has to stay small and kind of intimate. It's still a residential area, so I can't have big public events. But it can serve as an incubator and it can be a meeting place and a rehearsal space and an ideas place. So it can be a lot of things. At Township 10, Marjorie Dial plans two extended residencies for herself each year. She lives in Portland, Oregon, but she's otherwise turning over the culture and dynamic of the space to the resident artists. I've had a number of people question me about what kind of return I'm getting on my investment. And I just gently kind of ask them, you know, what return on the investment are they getting on their second home or their country club membership? Because this has been like the most transformative thing I've ever done. And you couldn't evaluate what's coming back from doing this project. There are other residencies in this region. The Center for Craft in Asheville has a program. So does Wild Acres Retreat in Little Switzerland. And last summer, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park offered a six-week residency to one writer. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News. After the break, I talk with author Elizabeth Catt. You might remember her from her book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, which came out three years ago. Well, Kat and I talk about her new book, which focuses on a dark history that touches Appalachia. Eugenicists put a lot of effort into these scare tactics to make something that is not visible seem like a primary threat. That story and more when we come back. Rock Island Line, mighty good road. Rock Island Line, road to oh, ride. Oh, that Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. If you want to ride it, gotta ride it like it's fine. Get your ticket at the station on a Rock Island Line. Well, A, B, C, double X, Y, Z. Cats in the cupboard, but he can't see me. Oh, the Rock Island Line. 
station on a rock out of line. Well, I may be right, I may be wrong. You're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Hold the rock out of line. Mighty good wolf. Hold the rock out of line. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In the early 20th century, the government forcibly removed hundreds of families from the land that would soon become Shenandoah National Park. Lula Judd was one of those whose families was displaced. She was born in the Blue Ridge Mountains in 1903, the oldest of 11 children. In 1975, Lula Judd spoke with Nancy Smith about growing up in the mountains in an area called Big Meadows. Well, it was, all, it was practically all cleared land. It was in pasture and farmland because everybody had their own, they farmed and raised their own food. And we had a cow, most everybody had cows, and uh, you had to feed them. So mm. you had to raise stuff to feed them. What did you um, raise besides corn? Like which vegetables did you raise? Well, we raised there? beans, but the bushels and bushels, potatoes, cabbage, turnips, and the biggest turnips and cabbage I've ever seen grow grew up in that mountain so sweet and brittle and potatoes were so different up there they didn't taste at all like potatoes that you get today. I really Mm -hmm. wonder what the difference was. Well it's just the mountain land that they grew in rich ground. There was all kinds of berries and fruits up in there you could ever think of. Oh the chestnuts were so sweet and good up Mm -hmm. there. The mountains were full of huckleberries. Mm -hmm. The fields everywhere was full of huckleberries. Mm -hmm. My land you could pick a bushel of huckleberries in no time. I wish you would seen the flowers that people had up in that mountain. Most beautiful flowers you ever looked at. Grandma had flowers that I never saw any like them. There used to be a whole vine that grew right by the side of her house, and she called it the Martha Washington Rose. It was lavender, and it was all about that big around, I'd say, and it was double, just as double as it could be. And it was just a, a dainty little vine on a dainty little vine, and it just crept all up over those rocks, you know, the thing there, and it was so pretty, oh, it was beautiful. I never saw any like it before mm-hmm. or after. But there's nothing up there anymore. So that's in the past. Lulaja died in 1993. She was 90. Her interview is part of the Shenandoah National Park Oral History Collection kept at James Madison University. For links to the complete interview and 134 other oral histories of mountain residents, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Her story was edited and produced by With Good Reason, which is a program of Virginia Humanities. The story of people being pushed aside to make way for the Shenandoah National Park is part of a dark history that's rarely told. The park's early advocates portrayed mountain people that live there as backwards to justify removing them from the land. A similar idea helped drive a global movement around the same time called eugenics. Eugenicists used the backwards justification and took it a step further. They argued that certain people were unfit to reproduce and so should be forcibly sterilized so they could never have children. Author Elizabeth Catt wrote about the campaign to push people out of Shenandoah National Park in her first book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. Her new book expands upon that history and ties it to the eugenics movement. Western State Hospital in Catstown of Stanton, Virginia, was just one place where patients were sterilized against their will. I recently interviewed Catt, and I wanted to start by asking her to explain more about what eugenics is. Eugenics is the practice of engineering human reproduction for the benefit of society. Now, understanding that I write about an early 20th century context, 
So when I say for the benefit of society, largely I am referring to uh, a largely white society. More than a, a scientific philosophy, eugenics in this era kind of took on the characteristics of a social movement. Um, it diffused out of the academy, out of the laboratory, into law and policy, into everyday life uh, for millions. So what I mean is there's a large interest in eugenics within popular culture itself. There were um, major motion pictures with eugenic themes. There were eugenic games that people would play. Um, magazines covered eugenics in a popular way. People would fill out questionnaires and send them to eugenics research organizations to kind of even just pass the time. So eugenics can be positive or negative. It can be active or passive. Um, sometimes the goal is to is to add people to the population. So so positive eugenics. Other times the goal of eugenics is to remove people from the population. So negative eugenics. Um, Sometimes the means of removing them is direct, like sterilization, uh, or sometimes the means is more indirect. So that would be, for example, I think limiting the access to healthcare for certain people. Uh, in Pure America, in the book that, that I wrote, um, my emphasis is, is a bit more on negative eugenics, so removing people from the population, and the system that Virginia developed for controlling the lives of quote-unquote unfit people. And at this time, when we think who is unfit, we're largely thinking about a population, populations that are primarily poor, Black, Native, a presumed mixed race, or disabled people. One thing that really struck me is just the squishiness of the term unfit um, when, when eugenicists were deciding who was fit and unfit to reproduce and how people that qualified then would be considered, you know, normal or have benign conditions at best now? Yes. I mean, I think one of the better examples of this squishy definition is a woman named Carrie Buck, who became the first woman legally sterilized um, in Virginia. Carrie Buck was, um, lived in a foster home when she was a teenager. She kind of worked as more, more of a housekeeper to this family. And when she was around 17 years old, she was raped by the nephew of her foster mother and became pregnant. And hoping to avoid uh, a scandal for that, the family sought to have Carrie committed to an institution called the Lynchburg Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, um, arguing that, that Carrie was a member of this, this class of people that this, the state was calling feeble-minded. Basically, virtually anybody could be uh, considered feeble-minded. It was a very much a condition that was in the eye of the beholder. Uh, a category that started out in the early uh, 20th century as, as denoting a, 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 a kind of person who was presumed to be hereditarily deficient in mental capacity. So people who were primarily uh, presumed to have kind of lower, lower intelligence and have difficulty getting along in life because of that. But it kept expanding and expanding and expanding to kind of capture uh, people who... Um, didn't necessarily have any sort of, of weakness or, or disability, but had what are more accurately described as character flaws. So women who were thought to be promiscuous, and this certainly fit um, Carrie's case, even though she was a victim of rape, uh, people who had substance abuse problems, people, teenagers who were truant and wanted to run away from their families, people who were not yet criminal but were thought to be on that track simply because they were poor or they had a family member who had troubles in the past. Certainly eugenicists use versions of intelligence testing, like IQ testing, to um, clinically, pseudo-clinically diagnose individuals, but these were also criteria that were designed to capture people with these specific uh, diagnoses, and, and the state used that to great effect to to um, as a means of, of controlling people that, that, that they presumed would um, become expensive burdens in the future. Can you talk a little bit about where Appalachia comes into the history of eugenics in Virginia? So Appalachia is, is, a, uh, is a place that I think is um, kind of synonymous or thought to be synonymous with poor white people. Um, and poor white people specifically in, at the turn of the century were a unique asset 
to eugenicists. So in the early 20th century world that eugenicists lived in, it would have not required a major mental leap for a white person to imagine a black person or a native person as eugenically compromised, as someone who possessed uh, a strong body but a weak mind. Their society was already bent towards that belief. But imagining the same of white people required further steps of the imagination. But if that could be achieved, then eugenicists consider that the payoff would be huge. Because so much of what uh, eugenic beliefs were built around was a kind of pseudoscience, there is an elaborate process that they used to claim truths, that scientific truths that were not demonstrable. For example, um, it's common to read in eugenic tests text uh, caveats about um, this person looks normal. You can't tell that they are feeble-minded. If you watch them work, you will not be able to tell that they are feeble-minded. But trust us, we've assessed them. We've studied them using our expertise. We've given them tests. um, And they are, in fact, feeble-minded and should be, you know, under the control of the state. So in other words, eugenicists put a lot of effort into these scare tactics to make something that is not visible seem like a primary threat. White people were the best and most obvious advertisers for this claim to truth. If they, if a eugenicist could get people to kind of bend around the reality that there are certain white people lurking in society that you, that were invisible threats, then that would be a tremendous uh, boost for their cause. At the same time, um, poor white people could be easily lumped in with black and native people when making arguments about the sort of kind of generic populations of poor people that were going to drain the state of its financial resources. Here in the mountains, um, poor white people and poor mountain white people had this dual purpose of demonstrating uh, these kind of terrifying eugenic truths, but also acting as this typical boogeyman of the kind of people that are holding localities or communities or states back. What manifestations of eugenics do you see continuing to happen today? So this is a this is a huge question, and the way that I choose to answer it is that every time somebody asks me for examples, I try to just give different examples because they they feel at this moment, especially uh, with the pandemic, almost infinite. But what I what I like to kind of would highlight uh, in a more forward looking way is that Appalachia has a huge disabled population. The process of of claiming Uh, benefits for disabled people is unnecessarily cumbersome. Um, And specifically, um, the fact that to claim uh, certain entitlements like Medicaid or or Social Security, um, those sometimes use a a spouse's income as well to determine eligibility. And not only does this keep people um, from accessing benefits they deserve and puts them in this clandestine um, bureaucracy, but it also reproduces what some disabled people say or outcomes that are reminiscent to eugenic marriage restrictions so that they can't, uh, they feel like they can't marry their partners or, or, or have families because uh, they, they will lose their benefits if they organize their families in the way that they want to. And so that, that is something that, that needs to be fixed at the federal level. That was Elizabeth Catt. Her new book, Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia, is available now. It's been almost five months since floods devastated multiple counties in eastern Kentucky. Deadlines to receive federal aid have been extended twice, but affected communities are still struggling to get help. Reporter Katie Myers went to the town of Jackson in Brevet County, Kentucky, one of the hardest hit areas. In a private room in Jackson's main pizza joint, the people are starting to come in. What do they have in common? They were all flooded out in March. 
and most of them are still rebuilding their lives. Erica lost everything in the flood. She's also still paying off medical debt from cleaning up flood water. When we went in to clean it, after the water went down, I mean, we were all sick. 51-year-old Margaret Campbell and her family are still homeless, camped out in the yard. We're in a 30-foot camper, and there's four of us, and it's hard. Campbell was helped by the Red Cross, but three weeks in a motel and $300 only got her so far. She cares for her autistic granddaughter and five-year-old son. And he wants to go to his room. He goes to his room. There's a toad of toys. He can't get them because they've been in that flood, and I don't want him to have them. Patsy Clare gathered everyone here today to talk about what they've been through. I'll call you and ask you, what do you have? What do you still need? Claire is dispersing money that she raised through her organization, Breathitt yeah. County Hunger Alliance. She's yeah. trying to connect people with resources and providing them emotional yeah. support. It's a grief process. You know, you didn't lose anything. You didn't lose a person, but you lost, you lost, you know, you, you lost your sense of identity. Many of those Claire has helped also applied for FEMA aid. However, many flood victims say the process was difficult and didn't lead to much help. Erica, a young mother, applied for FEMA aid after losing her trailer on Quicksand Road. Um, they said they didn't get it or they needed something different. I would get aggravated because I hadn't heard from them. Erica had some trouble because much of her paperwork got waterlogged. Others had similar issues or didn't know aid was available. In Owsley County, a librarian named Lisa Markham is helping anyone who needs to apply for FEMA aid. My job's from 9 to 5, but if I have somebody that comes in and says, Lisa, I can't get there to 8, I will stay because we're trying to get them back in their home. And I've seen firsthand the look on their face is just, you can't describe it. It's terrible. Markham has assisted as many as 50 people and says a total of 100 people in Owsley County were impacted by the flood. About 35% of Owsley County residents live in poverty. Owsley County Judge Executive Kale Turner says that's why federal assistance is critical for many. Sometimes a person, even if they're renting, if they lose all their personal, if they don't, if they're not able to get funding back through FEMA, it's really going to set them back because, you know, the poorer we are, the harder it is to come back from something like this. Even for those who did receive aid, there are strings attached. Erica says many applicants are pointed toward a small business administration loan that scares a lot of people off. Before I could ever get anything with FEMA, I had to apply for the loan. And I was like, listen, I have lost everything. I'm already in a hole. Why do I need a loan? That's the last thing I need is a loan. Still, she feels lucky compared to many. She received a small loan, not enough to cover everything, but enough to help her find a new place. But it's still on Quicksand Road, which she worries may flood again. I don't know. I mean, you, you can only hope that you'll be able to get help again, but I guess in a way it, it's kind of like a, a fear because, like myself, I'm still in the same trailer ports. Erica, Margaret, and other victims of the flood have little choice but to keep trying to restore what the rising waters destroy. And I'm still cleaning. I still can't get that line on the bottom of the wall. No, I can't get it off. I'm scrubbing, scrubbing with everything, with ammonia, and it will not come off. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers. As the region recovers from the floods, subsequent summer rains have disrupted the efforts. Some people there are even questioning whether staying is a viable option. Could these floods become a recurring reality? Next, we hear from Corinne Boyer. She reports on the instability Kentuckians still face. In early March, water began spilling out of the Kentucky River and filling the streets of downtown Beattyville. Debbie Dunaway says she and her husband did what they could to save their business, Beattyville Florist. We come down, we started moving everything up tables on top of tables, stuff in the front windows, piling it up. We had a platform back here and we piled it up with stuff. Within an hour of that trip, Dunaway says water flowed in through the front and back doors. It rose to about three and a half feet inside the Dunaway's building. As waters receded, it took about three and a half weeks to clean up and reopen. Dunaway says they worked around the clock because they had no income coming in. Well, May is always my busiest month. So we had to get back to work for May. And 
it it was pretty good. Of course, you know, it, it's took out of lot a lot of business here in town because so many places have not opened back up. On a hot summer day in July, clouds roll in and out over downtown Beattyville. On Main Street, a sign reading temporary relocation sits in the window of a doctor's office. Although some businesses have reopened, others haven't and may not reopen downtown. Recovery efforts in Beattyville and Lee County have been hindered by more rain. Flash floods have wiped out some emergency road repairs. Assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Agency is available, but the deadline was July 23rd. Individual assistance awards vary, but in 2020, the maximum amount a person could receive was $33,000. Lee County Emergency Management Director John Allen says nearly five months after the flood, people who've lost their homes have been placed elsewhere. At this point, unless there's somebody that has just, I'm not thinking about, they have all been placed somewhere, yes. We've all got them back into shelter somewhere or another. Renters and homeowners who suffered damage from the flood may apply for individual assistance from FEMA. Allen says he doesn't know why, but some people didn't apply. Now, I've had had folks that have come in my office that I know should apply, but they're prideful and they don't want to take assistance. They don't feel like they should have to rely on the government to help. In neighboring Owsley County, Judge Executive Cale Turner says flood victims need that assistance, and anyone who thinks it's a handout must not have been flooded. That's just like a home burn. To help somebody that's had their home burn, is that handout? No. You know, some folks' income is a lot more limited than other people. Allen says ongoing flash floods are causing even more damage, putting a strain on the small county's budget. The night before, a flash flood tossed a culvert down a creek on Blaine's Branch Road. So this house that we're going to come up to here on the right, this is Miss Chrisman. Uh, Miss Chrisman is where the culvert was at. Uh, her bridge has been washed out twice, well, the bridge and the June event and then the culvert last night. So right now, Miss Crispin doesn't have any access to get out of her house. Two counties over in Breathitt County, Yolanda Goff doesn't think things will ever go back to the way they were. She once owned a trailer that fit both of her teenage sons. Now they all sleep in one room in a neighbor's house. My home was totaled, and the home that I had, I can't buy that back for what I got because everything has went up. They want $70,000 for a single wide mobile home and the cost of, the cost of wood. The cost of supplies have all went up because of this disaster. Another Breathitt County resident, Patsy Clare, has been helping flood victims. She runs Breathitt County Hunger Alliance. When the inevitable question is raised about relocating, Clare points out that other people still live in places frequented by disaster. We own this land. This is our land. This is what, you know, this is what they've worked and they've paid for. This This is home. Yeah, this is home. Why don't the people leave the, the ocean side? When they, you know, yeah, when they get hurricanes, why are people living in Tornado Alley? You know, why do they continue to live there? For Inside Appalachia, I'm Corinne Boyer in eastern Kentucky. That story and the one before it were part of a two-story series reported for the Ohio Valley Resource. It's a journalism collaborative made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. fall of 2020, one-third of K-12 students in the Mountain State failed at least one subject. That's according to the West Virginia Department of Education. The state responded with a program called Summer Student Opportunities for Learning and Engagement, or SOUL. It's funded by a $32 million federal grant that paid for programs across the state. School districts had the flexibility to develop customized programs to address learning loss and social-emotional needs. June Leffler has this story from Charleston, West Virginia. Dozens of elementary-age students run around the Clay Center's Discovery Museum. Kids splash in water and stick their fingers in wet sand in a special water exhibit. There's a spot dedicated to science and sound with a variety of colorful objects to play with, and there's even a climbing sculpture. This is a place where imagination runs rampant. Today is our last day at Summer Academy, so this is our last field trip. That's 11-year-old Katherine Epling. She just finished fifth grade at Piedmont Elementary 
and has been attending Kanawha County Summer Academy at Mary C. Snow Elementary School. This is one of several sites that are part of Kanawha County's Summer Soul Grant. Epling says her favorite exhibit here at the Clay Center is one called My Town. It's a simulation of adult life. There's like a restaurant where you can be the, the like person who owns it and then there's a grocery shop and there are a lot of things you can do there. It's like a town. Epling says this summer she's been doing crafts, reading, math, and board games at Kanawha County Summer Academy. She's loved seeing her friends again. Epling has spent most of her days this summer at Mary C. Snow Elementary, but she's also gone on field trips like this one to the Clay Center. Lee Poindexter is Epling's teacher. Poindexter says the Summer Academy for the elementary-aged kids is unlike a traditional summer school experience. It's less about grade recovery from the past year and more about making sure students are ready for the fall. During the school year, there's this pressure because there's testing. And with Summer Academy, we are focusing on those deficits that they have, but it's not necessarily a focus on what you cannot do. It's just something like for mine, they're going to middle school, so I, this is what you need to do to be successful in middle school. This summer, Poindexter taught fifth graders from all over Kanawha County. Kanawha County Schools had its summer academy sites at several elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. The county received more than $3 million for its summer soul experience. Tom Williams is the Kanawha County Superintendent of Schools. He says secondary students did have to focus on their grades and the future. High schools mostly focused on credit recovery, courses that they didn't pass during the school year that they need to make up so they can graduate on time. Middle school students were at our career center. But Williams says all grades got to have some fun. They went on field trips, had visits from ice cream trucks, and there was even a gaming truck. It's really important to make this a fun thing for the kids because so many of them have been out of touch with their friends and, and classmates for the last year. So it's been a good opportunity for kids to come together. Williams hopes this summer program will pay off in the fall when Charleston students return to a more traditional classroom. With reporting from Liz McCormick, I'm June Leffler in Charleston. Now we'll head to Wayne County, West Virginia, where reporter Kyle Vass takes us to a farm called Out Wayne. This summer, students attending the program went there to pick herbs, feed chickens, and learn about mindfulness. All right, how's everybody doing? Good. Good. I think they're ready now. Park Ferguson runs Elmcrest Farm with his wife, Lacey Ferguson. But today he's taking a break to show 30 elementary school students and their teachers what his day-to-day -day looks like. Right now, we're in a greenhouse where Ferguson is teaching the kids about herbs. And we spread them out on these screens. You really want to get them spread out as best as you can so they're not touching each other. Why would we want them not to touch? So, so they don't rot. That's right. They dry out better if they don't touch it. It allows more air to move uh, through them and around them. So we want to just try to spread them out real good. Next, we head to a hen house filled with Rhode Island Reds, and Ferguson explains where eggs come from. Some of the kids share their own stories about chickens. I petted, I have petted a chicken multiple times. Oh, yeah. Our Watch Rhode your Island Reds name was Emma, but she got eaten by a chicken hawk. Oh, man. For the superintendent of Wayne County Schools, Todd Alexander, having his students come out to a farm is just one way he's tried to rekindle a love of school after an incredibly hard year. We've had more field trips during the summer than we had all year long. Alexander says from the $800,000 his county received from the Soul Grant Program, he chose sites where kids would be excited to go but would also be able to learn, hands-on. We had uh, one of the sites, the kids were tie-dyeing shirts, and uh, they, were th they were thrilled about that. And these field trips? Alexander says they're working. Typically, only 9% of his students sign up for their summer school program. This year, it's over 18%. One of the teachers said to me that, you know, they're learning, but they don't even realize that they're in school. So, we're going to take a minute, we're all going to sit like this. Back at Elmcrest Farm, a group of second graders is sitting in a semicircle and listening to Leah Mason. Mason is an intern at the farm. We are going to close our eyes 
and we're going to count how many different things we can hear, okay? And once we hear a different thing, then we're going to put up a finger. All right, ready, go. All right, friends. I heard five. You heard five. Raise your hands. Raise All right. your hands. So we are going to share some of the things that we heard, but we are going to raise our hands, okay? I got ten. After a brief meditation, the kids pack up and make their way back to the bus, but not before wondering about potential souvenirs. All right, friends. You all were such good workers, but now it is time for y'all to head back to the bus, it looks like. Okay? Really we have to leave all of our leaves home. We can just you can take them. your leaves or you can leave them. It is up to you. What do we tell her? Thank you. Thank you all. You for Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Vass. Kyle's story was part of a series from West Virginia Public Broadcasting called Closing the COVID Gap. To hear more, go to wvpublic.org. If you missed it, be sure to check out last week's show which was jam-packed with great music and voices from our region's ballad singers, storytellers, and a haunting near-future sci-fi book set in West Virginia. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from With Good Reason in Charlottesville, Virginia the Allegheny Front in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, WEKU in Richmond, Kentucky, and WMMT in Whitesburg. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Billy Bragg and Joe Henry from a 2016 mountain stage performance at the Byam Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We also heard music by Anna and Elizabeth, Dinosaur Burps, and Wes Swain. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.